0: Welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. I'm your host, Faizan Arshad. We are coming in live from the exhibit hall in Nashville, Tennessee from EMS World Expo 2018. We have assembled a panel to talk about a very important topic. We're going to be citing a paper from pre-hospital emergency care September 2018 on a position statement for degree requirements for paramedics. We're really excited to see what you all think about this. I have some opinionated folks in the room who I would love
1: to introduce. Hey everyone, I'm Dave Olvera. I'm on the uh, Flight Paramedic Association Board, the IAFCCP. And uh, my Twitter handle is at DaveOlvera1.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Kevin Colopy. I'm an emeritus board member with the IAFCCP. You can find me online at at And
3: my name is Phil Ward. I'm the sitting vice president for the IAFCCP. And you can catch me at at Stat2Medic.
0: Let's get it on. So let's talk about the three different associations which came together to help form this joint position statement. That would be the National EMS Management Association, or NEMSMA, the National Association of EMS Meduca- Educators, or NEMSI, as well as the International Association of Flight and Critical Care Paramedics, IAF-CCP. And essentially what the associations are advocating for is at a minimum, over the course of time, your recommendations are in 2025 that paramedic programs, and indeed folks who hire paramedics or agencies move towards a degree required or a degree preferred position for their new hires. So why is this important? Why is this a burning issue in EMS? Why does it matter? I, I'd rather not rock the boat, some uh, some folks on uh, advocating for the devil might say.
1: It's a couple things. One, uh, you know, we need to improve our practice. We need to improve our education standards, Um As we've seen with some of the other healthcare agencies, uh, a degree process has helped move and spark education, training, research, and all those fundamentals that we need to have. I think a certificate program is great, but unfortunately, I don't think it gives us the maximum opportunity for the benefit of the paramedic.
0: I think the skeptics would say, well, it's going to be an accredited program. We have a standards and national scope, which are enforced by the National Registry we have an exam which is uh, checking for the qualifications etc etc Kevin tell me more about the advancements that the degree will have on our patient care and ultimately our patient outcomes
2: so before I talk on patient outcomes I think you just hit something that's really important on the head there are mandates now for training programs to become accredited if you look at what those requirements are through an accreditation process. You end up with a certificate program or a con ed paramedic program who is doing essentially all of the same work as the core program for an associate's program for paramedics. I teach myself a continuing education paramedic program at a college that also offers an associate's degree. My students who come through if I already have to have their EMT, which is a part of the degree program, but by the time they go through and finish my class, they're going to have spent nearly the same amount of time in school as the Associates degree program students doing all of the same work, all of the same requirements, doing all of the same research. The class is just structured a little bit differently. Rather than having cardiology one, cardiology two, a respiratory class a geriatrics medicine course, a pediatrics medicine course, and going through it over two years, it is just part of the paramedic course with checkpoint tests along the way. So they're already really doing the work. What we're doing by saying it's going to move towards a degree is we are formalizing that education, and I think what you're also getting at the that same time is you end up getting better qualified instructors to teach that education to those learning and that i think is the crux of how the education will ultimately help tie into patient outcomes because if you have people who are not only subject matter experts in the medicine but also experts in education preparing and putting those courses together the students are going to become more engaged And learn better and retain better and be able to then apply what they're learning in the classroom into the field better. And that's where the medicine will tie into the patients to improve their outcomes. I think that's a nuanced and non-obvious point. So I think it uh,
0: is worth digging into that more. By moving towards a degree program, not only are we going to be elevating the care of the paramedics, however, we're also going to be upgrading the cadre of the clinical faculty, that are going to be responsible for educating and teaching and mentoring those paramedics, is that right?
2: Correct, so to be able to be a, an instructor for a certificate program in your average state, you probably have to be a paramedic, with three to five years experience, take a methodology course, and then there's probably a state instructor course, as most states have, and some have exams, some don't, kind of vary state by state. However, to become a faculty member at a university, that changes things now you have to have the requirements of what it takes to be a faculty member in addition to what the state might require from a regulatory side to be an EMS instructor. You move from EMS instructor to college or university faculty and those are fundamentally different.
0: I think one of the statistics cited in the paper was that 60% of existing accredited programs already have an associate's degree requirement. So You know, moving towards 2025, it doesn't seem like the hurdle would be that challenging to overcome. But nevertheless, there's a lot of uh, controversy around this topic. Phil, how do you feel?
3: To me, this is a common sense. And I think we overlook that the education provides for an entry level paramedic. And I think we as a whole industry overlook the fact that with innovations and technology, We're not, that education already is not keeping up with the advancement in the technologies, our scope of practice out on the streets, I mean we're responsible for more of the critical thinking, we're not just putting on splints, load and go, sometimes we need to stabilize on scene and there's a lot of other considerations and it's just overlooked.
0: You hit on a point which is uh, something that is near and dear to my heart, the biggest investment you can make in your paramedics is not any particular set of equipment, but rather it is a dedication to their medical decision-making so that when it hits the fan, they have the scope and breadth of knowledge to adequately work through their medical decision-making, form a differential diagnosis, uh, initiate some sort of intervention, test their hypothesis, and then Obviously reassess the patient to see if their intervention is making a difference. That's Absolutely vital, especially when de- dealing with critically
2: ill patients You need to be able to improvise adapt and overcome 10 years ago 15 years ago Paramedics were expected to follow protocols. Here's your chest pain protocol Here is your respiratory distress protocol. Here is your unresponsive patient protocol and we probably all remember we've all been doing this long enough where we would give patients the coma cocktail everyone got d50 thiamine, and narcan and magically they all kind of woke up and it's because that's what everyone got we didn't think about it we didn't necessarily understand the medicines we were using very well we didn't understand the why behind it as we've grown in the past 15 years no one's giving the coma cocktail anymore that's something that kind of has fallen by the wayside and part of that is because people are thinking through how we're managing patients. However, there's still a stigma in many areas where par- that paramedics don't diagnose. We treat symptoms. We have a differential diagnosis, whatever they might want to call it. If we are going to move that forward to really say you know, STEMI is a very easy one. If we're treating a STEMI, we diagnose that with a 12 lead Are we going to be wrong? Yeah. But you know what? You're, you're an ED physician. You understand 15%, 10 to 15% of diagnoses in the emergency department are wrong. It's okay for us to make mistakes, but we're going to make fewer mistakes, the better trained we are. And if we want to be accepted by our peers in the healthcare profession and be recognized as a vital component to the national healthcare system, we have to move beyond certificate courses and do what is accepted as the standard as a healthcare professional, and that is to have a degree in our profession.
1: I think it also takes to a point of learning more about medicine. So, with Kevin's point, just culture. Okay, we make mistakes; it happens. Now, do we fire the person? That's what we used to do, right? You make a mistake, man. Don't don't breathe the wrong way, and we fire you. And now we have a just culture where it's like, okay, where was the mistake made? How did it happen? who what where was it something that the system did wrong or is it something that the person did wrong and how do we improve that process and giving this opportunity to have this degree program allows you to build some of that education outside of it outside of the psychomotor part of it and actually the cognitive part of it and building that to allow um, paramedics and uh, emergency responders to have that critical care thinking and to have that process of understanding that it's not trial by fire it's a staggered approach and the appropriate approach.
0: That's a great point, Dave. I wanted to just read a quote from the paper. And of course, we're going to include the citation in the show notes. But furthermore, the practice of paramedicine has become increasingly complex and future paramedics are going to be required to not only exercise high-level technical skill, but must also master written and oral communication skills, provide EMS team leadership, for example, a team leader for cardiac arrest. And interact with an increasingly complex, interdisciplinary, and interprofessional healthcare system with rapidly evolving technologies. How would you guys structure a potential degree program, and what are the fundamental differences that would differentiate it from the current uh, certificate programs?
1: So, you know, part of it is building that foundation in terms of uh, uh, writing and grammar. Um, you know. I don't know of any program I've ever worked with or I've walked in and they have the, the best charting I've ever seen. It takes time to get there. It takes practice to get there. And I think implementing that, having the proper English and grammar will help out with that as well. Um, the other part of it is, you know, when you're looking at trying to improve practice, you can implement some of that training into improving this practice. So you can make a, uh, you know, an English 107 that's for emergency responders, and so they can focus on, you know, writing their their charting, or they can focus on communication skills with uh, the the receiving and the, the dropping off of the the patient and things like that. So the opportunity to grow and build is here, and that's what we want to do is be able to offer that. And you know, the big the big caveats. Everyone is jumping up and down about this, but this is moving for 2025. Meaning we have some time to build this. This is not happening tomorrow. I'm not taking your job away. And by the way, those who already have their paramedics degree have the opportunity to get this, but they're going to be grandfathered in. So this gives us time, almost 10 years, to build the perfect curriculum that's necessary for those people to have to get what they need to be where we're at today.
0: You brought an interesting parallel to my attention, Dave, and that was the nursing degree, for Mm -hmm. example. There's several different levels of the nursing degree, and now even uh, as nurses are providers from the nurse practitioner, they can uh, qualify for the doctorate in nurse practitionership so how do you parallel that to the uh, paramedic
1: so yeah, it's the same idea so you know in, in nursing when it first began it was an associate's degree um, in, in its first uh, accreditation and has since transitioned to the bachelor's degree uh, and now you have the mid-level where you have the master's level and then you have the DNP and I think we're in the same boat but we're 20 years behind uh, the, having the accreditation and what they've done has allowed them to expand their scope, expand their opportunities, and expand their presence in pre-hospital and hospital settings because uh, it allows them to train to a level where they can focus on specific skills. And I think we should do the same thing. I think the the baseline is getting your associates and paramedic. And if you want to continue further uh, to critical care or to flight, then, you know, a bachelor's or master's level program. And I think at some point, a doctorate program like they're doing out in Australia would be a fantastic idea. You know, I don't think that'll happen in the 2025 session, but I think it's something to grow on and let's catch up with the rest of technology and the rest of the world, and, 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 and move forward to what they're experiencing.
0: I think it's a great point from the healthcare perspective. I know, as part of NAEMT, several years ago, we made a switch in our uh, lexicon or the way we describe practitioners from, uh, you know, pre-hospital practitioners to, in fact, providers. We started describing paramedicine as a profession. Something honorable that you could grow with for the rest of your life as you pursued uh, advancement within your career. What are potential roles for advancement? I know that is one of the biggest struggles in paramedicine across the, this country anyway, In the sense that the nature of the job may not change for most folks. Who in other professions might graduate to an administrative level or a supervisor level. Most street paramedics don't have those opportunities for advancement.
2: Part of the reason we may not have opportunities for advancement is because we've siloed ourselves. We have said we're just going to take what you need to be a paramedic on the streets and that's all we're going to teach you and put that into those paramedic curriculums. So we didn't, as a setting courses up from the state levels and the grassroots levels and whichever area between you were. Over the past 20 years, we went, if you look back now into the 80s and 90s what paramedic programs were? they used to teach a lot more. We kind of scaled back. We well, really don't need all that to just do the job on the streets. And they scaled them back and scaled them back. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, you really had some scaled back programs. When I took my training in New York, that's one of the things I discovered is there was a whole list of what paramedics could do but we didn't learn those because it was you really don't need that you don't need that's something they'll do in the hospital ng tubes for example well that's just a technical skill it was well we're going to practice it once but we don't do that or you don't need that in this area so we're not going to focus on it instead of this is what you need to be a professional paramedic so i think you will see more discipline in the holistic approach to medicine as people continue to advance and grow.
1: You know, when I went to EMT school, there was EMT class. And then there was the EMT Academy. In the EMT Academy, um, uh, I had to give a, a little shout out to uh, Mike McDonough, uh, who's actually here uh, lecturing, and, um, and, and what he had done, and Mike Messina at the college is they gave an additional 200 hours of hands-on education and training. And so at the end of the day, on Fridays and Saturdays, I would go over to the college and we would do skills all day long, do hands-on skills, evox skills, uh, all different types of training. And when I left and I graduated as an EMT from there, I graduated. I mean, I truly walked out the door and I said, I can do this job. Now, was I scared? Absolutely, I was scared. But if I walked out after just taking the simple you know, a couple classes here and there, and then getting my certificate versus doing the academy, I don't think I would be where I'm at today. And I, and I truly credit the training and ed- education that I got from that point to make this happen. And I think that, you know, though I'm one person out of a million that are in, in providers, I think that's the way we need to go.
3: I think expansion of other uh, subspecialties. I just visited down on the floor with a gentleman from Georgia who wrote basically their community medicine. So that's an advance. You're completely, as far as I'm concerned, depending on the model, you're completely changing all of your practice. We're 911, seeing calls sometimes in our facilities. Now we're taking these clinicians and we're putting them in an SUV and sending them to people's house to make house calls. Different, an extension of a different position. And how do they handle those people? So when we talk about this additional education, I would I hated psychology class. I hated it. But those people walking into somebody's house, how, how do you handle that situation? What do you see? What's the environment? That, uh, that whole approach to those patients. And aside from the didactic piece of community medicine that's completely different, all these other courses, um, associate's degree I think it's entry-level necessity just have to I'm sorry I'm running on a tangent on here
0: I think it's very relevant because um, the psychosocial component is not something that you can ignore certainly not this day and age Mm -hmm. and being able to relate to patients uh, when entering their home and sort of understanding with empathy and compassion the challenges that they're facing and the barriers to their health care certainly requires more than a basic uh, understanding of anatomy and physiology. And it sounds like a lot of what you're describing are certain humanity skills like communication, uh, writing, the psychosocial components, in addition to upgrading the uh, quality and depth of the medical education as well as increasing
2: lab time for clinical skills. So getting back to the question you asked on hand is, where do we see ourselves going? Where do we see the end point? I think if you look on the big vision, where where does and paramedicine need to be? We need to be self-governing. And as long as we are governed by other professional bodies within healthcare, we are always gonna be limited and be a secondary part of the profession. To truly be self governing, to have a college of paramedics eventually setting the standard of care and scope of practice for all levels of the paramedic profession. I don't want to call it the pre hospital profession because it's, that's again, limiting our scope to the pre hospital setting. Phil's right. We have community paramedics and that's, that's out of hospital care. So maybe it's the out of hospital profession, but you know, really there's in hospital care where I think there's a place for paramedics too. I, I don't think we want to pigeonhole ourselves into defining where paramedics should be practicing. I think the need a lot needs to allow that to drive that in the future. Just like the nursing profession started in one area of healthcare and it's now gone into it's pervasive throughout all of healthcare with good reason. I think there's a place for paramedics for that as well. And if we get out of the paradigm, all the paramedics places in an ambulance on the side of the road, taking care of someone who's been in action, we say a paramedic's job is to help with the out-of-hospital management of patient care, well, then we really have an endless opportunity of where we can grow. Uh, Clearly, all of us here are in favor of paramedics obtaining degrees. Um, We'd be remiss if we didn't take knowledge of the 100,000 people that engaged online on our IAFCCP Facebook page. Uh, if you aren't following us, please, we'll shamelessly plug, go on Facebook and follow our association. Go to our website. You can read the position paper we're talking about. Um, but if you go and read the comments, there were a lot of people that were vehemently against us having degrees in paramedicine. And one of the places I saw it, and I'm not calling any profession out, but I thought was very interesting, is many fire services there is not a degree needed. What I thought was interesting, though, is many of those fire services also work with firefighters who have an associate's in fire science. Mm -hmm. And the paramedic was in addition to that, and they didn't, you know, perhaps they should have said, and I'm speaking for them a little bit, perhaps it's, but we don't want them to have a separate associate's degree to require two degrees to do this job. And my retort to that is, and this is my personal opinion, that as the paramedic profession grows, we can't be a subset of someone's Access into another career, paramedicine needs to be looked at as a growing profession in and of itself. And to that effect, we shouldn't be a part of another degree for another profession. We should have our own programs that define
1: ourselves. When you get an associate's degree, my understanding is, I get an associate's in fire fire science. If I want to get an associate's in paramedicine, the courses that I take for paramedic school will uh, bridge the gap so that you can obtain a second degree by doing that. I may be wrong, but um, when I was looking at degree uh, things earlier, uh, I was looking at an associates of science and associates of paramedicine, and they were relatively close. And they said, well, you don't have enough hours if you were to try and get both, but if you went back to paramedic school and did X, Y, and Z, then you would be able to obtain two degrees. Mm. So I think the challenge is scary. And I think really at the end of the day, it's Fear of change. You know, we always say the, the scariest words in, in medicine is we've always done it that way or this way. We're there and we're making a change and we're trying to improve. And I think we need to focus on that to one improve outcomes of our patients, but improve our profession. You talked about trying to grow in the industry. Well, you know, I think this optimizes our opportunity to advance, not just in our lane, but in an executive level. Uh, If, in the future, you want to become that EMS manager or that EMS director, those steps are already planted for you to help continue further so that you can get your bachelor's or master's in whatever education you need to. So if you get it in paramedicine, great. But if you want to get your MBA, you want to be a uh, director of an ambulance company. I think that builds that foundation for you to move forward with it.
0: It certainly would set you up for success. Absolutely. Another thing that people are afraid or fearful of are the potential additional costs associated Mm -hmm. with it. What are your thoughts on degree requirements and the potential for paramedic salaries to increase? And in general, what are your thoughts on reimbursement for out-of-hospital
2: services and where are we heading in the future? So reimbursement right now for pre-hospital providers is largely tied to us being used as a part of the transport arena. If you look at us, we are under the Department of Transportation. We are paid for mileage. We are not paid for patient management. We are paid based on distance we are to the healthcare system. And then in the hospital, you are charged for services provided. In our current fee structures, even though we're paid by Medicare and Medicaid, everything is bundled under the ambulance transport fee. That's literally what it's called. So we're looked at as transport providers. As we move towards profession, one of the barriers we have heard from a lot of providers, and this is to our association even, is, well, you shouldn't be making us advance our education until you advocate for and fix the pay disparity between us and other healthcare providers. And the first thing we go back to is one of the reasons there's a pay disparity is because there's an education gap. Hmm. People who have degrees and where everyone has degrees, it is easier to argue and advocate for increased pay. So I think it's, we have to take the high road. To get increased pay and increased reimbursement, the first thing we have to do is all have the same standard and that's why as we raise that bar and everyone has that same degree in advanced training, we can now say, see we are members of the healthcare profession, we are all part of the healthcare industry as a whole and as such, we should be reimbursed like the rest of the healthcare profession. Th- that will lead to increased reimbursement, both rates and probably levels. And that will allow the paramedics to also push back to healthcare providers as uh, systems to advocate for increased pay. Um, I'm fortunate and work for a hospital system and I help with the pay scales. I help set pay scales. Um, well, we don't set them, we, we write the job description and then it gets evaluated. And if I put in associates required or bachelors required, that instantly raises the pay scale within our healthcare system. So as soon as we put that on a piece of paper on a job description and say, this is required, that gets graded higher. As long as that certificate option is there, that's now viewed at a technical level that is not viewed at a professional level within healthcare. And I'm fairly confident that my healthcare system is not the only healthcare system that looks at it that way. I think that's a great point.
3: My last two organizations that I went to work for, both in the pay matrix factored in, did I or did I not have a degree?
0: So do you think that marginal increase in cost with the associate's degree would be worthwhile for folks in the long term and we wouldn't be uh, unnecessarily saddling them with student debt like we're doing with many of the physicians that are graduating now with $200,000, $250,000 in debt?
1: I think part of that you have to look at, too, is where you're getting that financing. There's a lot of scholarships out there for um, for uh, education and research and EMS. Uh, there's a lot of scholarships and, and endowment funds out there. Also, like, um, and I don't exactly remember the correct verbiage on this, but if you do, like, a federal loan, uh, there is a, uh, a, 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 geez, I'm forgetting the word, but basically a forgiveness Over three, I think it's a year or three years, you have to work in certain areas, you have to do something. So there are a lot of opportunities, and I'm going just on 1% of the things that I know, but there's a lot of opportunities out there to um, get tuition reimbursement or to have that happen to help justify the cost.
2: If you look at what people pay right now for their certificate program, yes, there are some states that provide funding for people to go to paramedic school and that's to help overcome some of the paramedic shortages. I think that's a separate talking point maybe later on in this or in a separate podcast. Um, but most places, people are already paying a significant amount of money for their training. The difference in what they pay now versus what they would pay for finishing the associate's degree, if we look at the amount of hours you already spend in that paramedic training, the net difference between those is probably only about 30% in cost. So we're not talking a huge increase. We are not saying by 2025, Harvard and Yale and Colgate and Bates should all have four-year degrees and they're gonna charge us $50,000 a person a year. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking start mandated at the community college level at the two-year degrees, where they are already state supported, where most of these programs are already situated, and the net change is gonna be relatively small. And yeah, there might be some debt, we, we do hear people talk about that, but that's looked at as good debt, that's healthy debt, that's smart, that's gonna help you grow in advance. And I think you would also find a lot of people who get into that, brick, that academic setting find they enjoy it and they get stimulated to continue their education beyond it, and they do continue to take on some additional debt. And I don't think it would be very long behind. I think if by 2025, every every new paramedic has an associate's degree, if we achieve that vision, I think by 2028, 2030, you would see pay scales already start to go up because we can now demand it. We can all as paramedics stand together and say, we will not work for $13 an hour, $14 an hour, barely being able to get by, having to work two jobs. As a healthcare professional, we, insist, and we have earned some higher consideration. And if every paramedic at a program stands together and says that, they're going to start to listen. It might be a carefully constructed conversation. It's not going to happen overnight, but I think it will occur.
0: I'm just going to sneak in a tangent here. Uh, You also uh, nuanced a reference to a potential four-year degree program for folks who are pursuing specialized Uh, careers within paramedicine. So a good friend of mine, Sam Ireland uh, from Foam Frat, wrote a very nice blog on that topic, and we'll reference that in the show notes for folks who are interested. Now, to conclude this very interesting conversation, I would like to ask all three of you gentlemen, who uh, each of you is incredibly humble, but nevertheless has found a path within paramedicine that has allowed your own career to grow your own uh you know personal vision and uh, development and psychosocial growth etc within the profession so you know understanding that all three of you are actually incredibly human uh, humble human beings can you talk to us about your path through paramedicine, what some of your inspirations were, what some of your motivations were, how you found yourself advancing within your organization and career just so that we can start planting those seeds within the EMS Nation audience to inspire them as well as inspire the future generations of paramedics who are signing up not only to serve but also um, as potential academics and to advance and build a profession where we can all come to the table as healthcare professionals?
1: So, you know, I started my career in kind of a weird way. I took a CPR class with my mom when I was a kid. And shortly thereafter, we went to visit my grandfather and he was collapsed on the floor and we did CPR. I went, wow, that's kind of interesting. Then I shadowed a doctor when I was in high school and I volunteered in an emergency room. And I did close to a uh, thousand hours of volunteer hours as a, just as a, uh, a volunteer in the ER. I learned so much. And then I went into the military and became an EMT in the military and a a tactical medic. And it was just so much fun in learning what I was learning. I kept taking it in, taking it in. Uh, And from there, I, I jokingly say I got tired of being shot at, so I jumped into helicopters. But I missed my first intubation. And that's what really slingshotted me, is I missed my first intubation attempt, and it wasn't hard. And I had everything down. It was RSI, everything was perfect. I remember the place, the area, I know everything about it still in my head. I can tell you every detail about it Mm -hmm. and I missed. And so I got back to work and I was working as a unit clerk in the ER and my um, medical director was working that night with me. And I I didn't know much about him, but I knew he was kind of like a a cool guy. And so his name is John Sackles. And I said to him and um, I said, hey, I missed my first innovation. He goes, really? Yeah. you know. And he listened. I talked to him about it. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, well, I think you could have done this and this. And we discussed the airway. Then I said, I need to learn. Tell me what you know. Teach me what you know. And he goes, well, how much time do you have? And jokingly, I said, all the time you need. Not knowing that he's one of the top airway guys in the world. And so he took me under his wing. We learned. I intubated. I got much better, and then I helped build research and data for him. I started building a database and tracking his intubations and all that, which um, he's he's pretty well world famous for. And um, took that and said, "Man, this research stuff is cool. You know, this teaching stuff is pretty cool." And so that took me to another level where I started teaching residents, par- uh, paramedics, teaching attendings uh, about airway management and, and how to use all these devices. And I said, "Oh man, there's something here." So after you know, helping him publish a few papers and presenting a few times, I, I got the bug. I got the research bug, and uh, I've never dropped it. And then coming over to my current flight company, I'm the head of their research now. And uh, I have since transcribed our database that we built there into our company. We have over 10,000 live innovations. And it's just so awesome to work with crews and work with staff and see the light bulb turn on. And see it come together, or see—I get a phone call from them going, "Oh my gosh, I did what you were talking about. It was so cool. It worked, and the patient lived." I was like, "Wow, that's awesome. That's that's the fun I have now." I mean, I do miss jumping in the helicopter and having the freeway shut down and me walking out there like I'm here. But uh, now to hear my students and colleagues uh, and coworkers do that with some of the education and research that we've come up with is really amazing. And so. Um, but i couldn 't do that without having a degree i couldn 't keep it making success without a degree i 'm still in school i 'm in school today. I have a test due by the end of the day, by, the, by midnight tonight and so you 're presenting good. in like thirty minutes and I 'm presenting <laughs> in like thirty minutes no pressure. but have you started your talk yet have you started writing it, I need to start. I was just going to go with like no, no pictures, just go up there and talk. Um, you could
3: do
1: but yeah, South said yeah, Sal said we could do it. yeah, but you know in, in, you know in all seriousness. I wouldn't be anywhere I'm at today if I didn't take that step. And it's a difficult step, trust me. I have a very forgiving wife with two kids that she takes care of and she's an angel. And um, if, I didn't, if I didn't have her support and all that, this would be difficult. But it's possible to do.
2: Thanks so much for sharing, Dave. D- Dave's totally leaving out like one of
1: his most significant
2: accomplishments to date. And I don't think you knew before Monday Um, A a year ago, you published research and some data on the heaven criteria for airway. And on Monday, they announced that the heaven criteria was replacing lemons in the PHTLS textbook. So right there, that is what a paramedic came up with, has presented, been speaking on, and just changed what every single paramedic is going to be learning. And it's not some made-up acronym that's just going to help us. He actually used real data from pre-hospital intubations to figure out a better way for us to assess and prepare to manage airways. So that to me is like, what a better example of what paramedics can do with additional training, with experience, getting into research. Like that kind of summarizes it all. I don't think the rest of us need to talk anymore. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I got into EMS. Uh, I knew when I was going for my undergraduate, that I wanted to become an EMT. And so when I was looking at schools, I wanted to pick somewhere where I could volunteer as an EMT. I originally thought I was gonna go to medical school. That was 18 years ago. Um, But I started as a volunteer ambulance service. And my first fall, we had a quadruple fatal on campus. Um, Yeah, a guy got split in half. They went about 80 to 90 miles an hour into a big old oak tree, uh, car accident. That was fun. Uh, And then the first time I performed CPR was on my RA's boyfriend. That was in January, Um, and so this was all in 2000, and then fall 2001, I found myself at Ground Zero. Um, So I had a very interesting exposure and introduction into EMS and it kind of distracted me from my academics, got me on a different route, and by the time I graduated with my degree, uh, actually in environmental biology, um, I had my paramedic as well, and I was going to work as a paramedic while I figured out what I wanted to do, and had started teaching for a company called Wilderness Medical Associates International. And one of the things they ta- really taught me there early on, from a instructor side, I had started teaching by this point, was you needed to know what you're lecturing on so well you don't need slides. You need to be an expert on whatever it is, and you can't just know a little bit more than the students, which is. What I found my paramedic program was is I had a bunch of people lecturing at me that just knew a little bit more. I actually had someone tell me this is a great example of what kind of pissed me off as a student because I was taking biology classes. I took organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, physics. You know, I've got a biology degree. I took four years with every semester at least one biology class. And we were talking about drug math and we were talking about how to mix a drug and you have 10 mils of dopamine, that you're going to mix into a 250 bag, and I was like, so you have to draw off 10 milliliters? I was, no, you don't, because that's just 10 mils of drug. I said, no, then your total volume is 260, and I got in an argument with my instructors that you had to take the volume out, and they told me I was wrong and disciplined me in class for arguing that point. I was like, this is simple chemistry. Here's this. This is volume addition. This is not difficult, um, but that was like, it, it frustrated me to wanting to get into helping with EMS education and to make it better. Um, and so I'm kind of really bad at if I open my mouth, I'm not just going to insert my foot, but I'm going to try and do something about it. So I started getting into EMS education and EMS writing uh, fairly early on in my career. Um, so when I got done with school, I started working part-time as a paramedic. Um, and. Because of my undergraduate degree, where I went to school, one of the requirements was in every class, whether it was calculus, biology, or history, you have to write at least 30 pages worth of papers in every class, every semester. Uh, So by the time I graduated, I had written probably a thousand pages, um, 100 of which was my senior thesis, or 120 of which was my senior thesis, um, and then I had my senior project at the same time, which was another 100 pages, which kind of helped so writing kind of, I caught the writing bug early on. And I really didn't like paramedic textbooks. I thought they were poorly written, because they're written, right now if you go and pick up a paramedic textbook, most of them are written to the eighth grade reading level. They are not written for college students. Uh, and I didn't like that. I, I didn't like the vernacular they used. I didn't like the information they had. And so I started writing and getting involved in it. And that kind of led me to move up quickly into programs I was with. I got into flight medicine. Um, And I just, because of my interest in it and because I had academic preparations, writing came easily. Um, You can probably go online today, and I have uh, 150 different publications that I've published over the last 18 years at this point. Uh, And the what's really been fun for me is in the last five years, six years, I've really gotten into research similar to David. Uh, And right now we have uh, five ongoing clinical trials at my program right now for which I'm the principal investigator or co-principal investigator uh, and we've been able to publish uh, about fifteen research abstracts and papers in the last five years. Um, that's how David and I started talking originally and got going on things and being able to compare notes. And you know, you get to freely admit we nerd out and get excited <laughs> about things. Um, and, and we talk about the different things paramedics are doing. But it's awesome if you go downstairs right now. There's forty-one research abstracts developed by paramedics for paramedics about the paramedic profession, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. And So having my degree from the get-go opened up a lot of doors. As I was interviewing for jobs, degrees were, the degree set me apart from other candidates at several different junctures throughout my profession. And having a program where I was taught how to write not only helped my daily work as a paramedic, but allowed me to help resolve those things that frustrated me within the profession. And while we still have a long way to go, You know, everyone's got things that frustrate you. Well, set yourself up to be able to help do something about it so it's not just a bone of contention, but you can actually find that resolution.
3: Thanks, Kevin. Phil, my resume is not nearly (laughs) (laughs) either of these two. So uh, I took a really different path, a more difficult path. So I actually dropped out of college um, to be a firefighter. My path ended up as a firefighter. I got absorbed, um, I knew nothing about EMS, and I just got absorbed in being out and helping people, and one of my first calls, I had just thought, everybody turned them back in, the jaw I might take an extrication course, and five weeks later I'm on like this mile long bridge, it's the most heinous car wreck you can imagine, it's like the dark and stormy night thing, and I'm in the middle of it, and it's this helicopter comes sweeping in. And I'm like in the middle of a movie, right? So I go home and I tell my wife, um, so this starts out as a volunteer. I'm quitting my job, I'm gonna be a firefighter. I'm gonna get my red patch, I'm getting on that helicopter. Um, so I got picked up shortly after uh, by City. They invested in me, they took a more expensive route, a more lengthy route. Sent me to a reputable program um, where I got my paramedic, and then I I went in and I wanted to know more. I wanted to help more because I wasn't happy being a first responder paramedic. So I went to work as a med tech. Uh, I took because firefighters think they have to all EMS folks think they have to work fifty jobs. I worked. uh, I spent about two and a half years on uh NICU PICU transport team and I got to hang out in the ER and in the PICU and expand and then I decided to make myself more marketable. I needed my flight certification. I wanted a critical care certification yet having no um, so I uh, fortunately the same program the college that I went to offered a one semester critical care. It was like ninety-six didactic, and I think I did about 135 clinical hours where I lived in a cardiothoracic unit um, and prepared and studied and hung out in the ICU when I was with the transport team um, so that I could grow that and then went and challenged the test. And I think I scored a higher score than Dave Vera <laughs> on the flight. I don't know if I'm saying that. <laughs> <That's> very possible.
2: Dave <laughs> um, did have to take it four times.
3: <laughs> so, but um, then I met some colleagues. I'm not going to give a shout out to her, but um, she, a couple of people were pretty integral in getting me out networking. Shout her out. Ashley Vosliebig.
0: We've never heard her name on this podcast. Said, so what does she do?
3: Um, she terrorizes me on a daily basis. That's what
2: I thought, yeah. yeah
3: that's her prime so, function. Her,
2: I'm, I'm still waiting for her to tweet out pictures of you at work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: he has to go to work.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, just
3: going out and networking, my path really was being in the right place at the right time, networking, coming to conferences, and not only expand your education, um, and then... Make yourself valuable. How many thousands, tens of thousands of paramedics with all the merit badge cards that we're required to have? Um, find something else, educate. Make yourself better, make the people around you better, and uh, just find an edge. Never take no. note, that's how I got it. Thanks, Phil.
0: And thanks, Dave, and thanks, Kevin. I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you three Uh, For being advocates, for always pushing, for taking our profession to the next level, for believing in the next generation, for trying to set up a system where people are set up for success, Um, for never taking no for an answer, for always believing there's a path to a better outcome, for believing also that even in EMS, we can be academicians and conduct our own research and prove and refine our patient care. So I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you guys. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having us. appreciate it. Uh, I think what's been missing from this is your perspective as an EMS medical director. Why do you want us to have a degree? What does that do for you as a leader of a system? Great question, Kevin. (laughs) We're flipping it back on you.
1: Is it hot here?
0: (laughs) Uh, But it's a great point. And uh, really the thing that I invest in the most is the medical decision making. And there's no shortcuts to medical decision making. It's about experience and knowledge and mentorship, right? Those are the three key ingredients that really help hone and develop a provider, a healthcare professional somebody who has a longitudinal career caring for patients in the out-of-hospital sphere, which is inherently different, we have to acknowledge, from the in-hospital sphere. And pursuing a degree and being dedicated to academics and never stopping learning, having a true commitment to continued medical education is really what I value in the folks that I admire most that Are performing this service and duty on a daily basis. So I think um, in regards to ultimately improving patient outcomes all across America, that's the core mission of EMS Nation. The reason I started this blog and podcast is because the disparities in care and outcomes in our own country are staggering, right? Despite us having a national registry test that every paramedic has to take and pass, despite us having a scope of practice, despite us having uh, accredited programs, right? What we cannot deny is that patient outcomes for the exact same disease process, irrespective of the other, you know, potential confounding variables are highly different regarding on where you live, where you practice, the nature and design of that EMS system. Are you dealing with volunteers that have full-time jobs and are responding from who knows where? Are you dealing with career professionals and paramedics who have dedicated their careers to saving more lives? And I think those healthcare disparities are really what motivate me. And I think moving towards a standardized degree process where then folks are set up for success, can continue to advance their careers and their professions. And we're all aligning our interests as healthcare professionals under the wide umbrella to say, okay, we are going to focus on patient-centered care. That's really where the magic happens. And we have a long way to go to get there. And I think this is definitely a key step to help push us forward. And with that, let's give a, a quick shout out to Hillary Gates and Josh Hartman, very good friends of the podcast, for hooking us up with this amazing classroom that is literally on top of the exhibit hall. And thank you so much. This is Dave Olvera, Kevin Colby, Phil Ward, and Faison On Our Shot wishing everyone a safe tour.